You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic theological questions of the day. Welcome aboard, everyone. Glad to have you along with us. Uh, let's welcome the always prepared and deeply studied Brian Chilton. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, how was your Easter celebration? I, it was fantastic. It, uh, you know, we uh, Obviously, it was a little different being under the stay-in-place uh, order that we are here in North Carolina, but we did, do have some good news it seems like uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic that uh, it is, it's reaching its peak and it seems to be going downhill. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I do know some folks, um, even some are associated with our church, who have loved ones who have uh, been afflicted with the COVID-19 oh, virus. And in fact, uh, uh, one gentleman lost an older brother in Wilmington, which is uh, at, the, at the coast of North Carolina. Uh, popular destination over there uh, close to the beach and if you've heard of Myrtle Beach down in South Carolina yep. it's north of that uh, but yep. um, anyhow he, he was uh, he was in a nursing home his brother was and and the uh, virus came there and afflicted the the people in, in that facility and unfortunately um, he, he uh, they believe uh, came down down with that so uh, anyhow it's the, but the good news is is that it seems to be peaking and so Hopefully, our prayer is around May. Maybe we can get back to normal, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, they're, they're supposed to let us know here uh, in a couple weeks as to what the game plan is. So, right. But be much in prayer for us. There's a lot of folks who've uh, been affected uh, because of really because of a lot loss of jobs. Uh, this uh, with with shutting everything down. There have been some uh, employers who've had to furlough some of the employees. Good news is with furlough they'll they'll be back, but. Right. Uh, don't know when, but then there's uh, the right. others who've lost their jobs completely. In fact, there's a local restaurant here in our area, in the Pilot Mountain area, that closed down. Uh, had to close down due to uh, all this going on. So it's been uh, really, really an interesting situation all the way around. But mm-hmm. Easter is good. Yeah. We know Christ is still risen, and that's the, and He's still on the throne, and that's Amen. the most important thing. Right. Amen. Yeah, uh, Pastor Lynn. Uh, served up one heck of a message uh, about rolling the stone um, and it was it was just amazing um, and and encouraging um, for everybody uh, it was really good and, and we got to enjoy that online uh, shared an online service like you guys did and um, yeah we we got to we got to um, share the sacraments um, in our own houses <laughs> we all had to get some sort of uh, uh, grape juice or, or something for ourselves and some bread and share it with each other and did, did people and, share uh, what they use for the sacraments um my my daughter and uh my son-in-law they used uh they had a, a bottle of water and um uh they had a muffin <laughs> <laughs> i had one person say will the lord forgive me if i use a diet dr pepper and a ritz nah. cracker <laughs> the thought people it's the it's what it's what it's representing so and yeah. that's actually going to be some a, a viewpoint that we're going to talk about in today's show as well coming up 
That's good. Good. Hey, uh, we have a question come in, or some questions come in from uh, from a from a questioner by the name of Apple Mango. Um, you want to go ahead and go through those real quick? Yeah, I, I don't have the question in front of me, but I, the, the person was asking for resources on uh, different issues. I think uh, Eternal Assurance, Eternal Security, I think was I, one of them. Yeah, I, I have the questions here if you want me to just read them out real quick. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Okay. Um, it's, uh, number one, the, the deity of Jesus. Uh, number two, the Trinity. Number three, systematic theology. Uh, number four, uh, eternal security. Number five, assurance of salvation okay so what what i was going to recommend in this regard is uh going back to one of the questions there was talking about systematic theology if you get a good systematic theology book they're, they're going to cover most if not all of those uh those uh the questions that that, that was mentioned the book that we've used at Liberty is a good, well-balanced book. Uh, it's by Millard Erickson uh, on uh, called Christian Theology. Uh, that's a really good book if you are more into apologetics. If you want more of the theology side, go with Erickson's uh, Christian Theology. If you want more of the um, apologetic side, uh, Norman Geisler wrote a uh, systematic theology book to save yourself some money, get it's a large book, but get the all-in-one volume because he wrote about five volumes, but this has been a condensed into one volume, and it's really good. Um, also, there's you know, Curtis, you and I were talking about individuals who uh, are maybe non-Calvinistic writing systematic right. theology books, and that's something that uh, uh, I think we need more of to kind of give a balanced view. Erickson is going to come from. He's going to call himself a Calvinist, but really, if you dig deeper, he actually has more of a Molinist or congruous type of philosophy, uh, even though he's going to call it a mild Calvinism. Geisler does does that as well. But there's another guy by the name of Thomas Oden who writes a systematic theology book called uh, Christian Theology. Um, no, 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 I'm sorry. I had to turn around and, and look at it on the shelf. Classic. <laughs> Classic Christianity. I'm getting the titles mixed up. He comes from a Wesleyan perspective, uh, and and he actually does a great job, killer bang up job, blending, uh, blending theology and apologetics. He takes an interesting take on his theology too. He actually blends it back with what the early church fathers, how they interpreted. So what what he's going to do is he's going to give. Um, classic Christian theological doctrines, and he's going to not only give you scripture verses, but he's going to give you uh, places where you can find the beliefs, the teachings in those areas among the early patristic writers. Uh, so uh, it's really good. I think he's well balanced. I think he does a killer job. Uh, he 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 forms this systematic theology around the Trinity, triune nature of God. And, uh, and he discusses everything from church to Holy Spirit and everything in between, you know, God creator, um, uh -huh. revelation and everything. But he does it within each person of the triune Godhead. So it's really a good book. Uh, I, it, I, I highly recommend it. All three of those, those theology books I would highly recommend. And I have one on the Trinity that, that actually is a, it's actually a, 
it's just a fun book to read. It's a good book to read. Um, it's it's called Delighting in the Trinity uh, by Michael Reeves. Um, it's it's solid. It's a good it's a good book to uh, to actually start digging in and, and actually um, finding some of the things that uh, that actually make sense um, about it. It's good. Absolutely. So, okay, so. Uh, everyone, we got uh, church, church history coming up, part two. Um, and I, Brian and I were talking off off the air that this might end up being fifteen twenty podcasts. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a possibility. <laughs> uh, um, but this is going to be a good one. We're going to get into some pretty good time frames, and uh, you know, um, I'm excited for this one. So let's go ahead and get rolling. Absolutely. So where do we start with this? Uh, where did we leave off last week or last time? Well, the last time we started with the earliest church, and right. uh, we, we were, were looking at the formation of the church. We looked at uh, the patristic writers. We went into uh, the medieval theologians. So right. what we basically see is we see the church growing and developing, uh, it's it's persecuted. Uh, then around 325 or thereabouts in the 300s, 330s, I think, Constantine rises to power. He becomes a Christian. Uh, he makes Christianity an official religion of Rome. So now they have less persecution that goes on. So you over time see the church rise to power. But the problem is, is that oftentimes when the church has been overly involved in governmental affairs, the right. the the church and government, the church and state, the lines have been blurred, and sometimes the politicians start, you know, individuals who may have the title of a bishop or something like that may have more political motives in mind, and so that blurs the distinction. So around ten fifty four. I think we discussed the uh, the church split into the Western right. Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern yep. Orthodox Church. Uh, we, we follow along the lineage of uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, because it goes more into Europe and um, in that area. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of things that happen in the Eastern Church. It just seems that the Western Church seems to be where the majority of the denominations have stemmed. Um, we, we talked about the medieval church, and we talked about the great Thomas Aquinas, who was a phenomenal theologian, apologist, and philosopher. And so if I'm not mistaken, I think that's where we, that's where we ended. I believe Aquinas was around the thousands yep. uh, mark there, uh, there, thereabouts. And so now in today's podcast, what we want to do is we want to branch off um, from that, because during the medieval times, you have several discussions going on, but the church rises to power. And part of the problem that begins happening is when the church rises to a prominent role in power, they start abusing that power. It's like what Abraham Lincoln said, if you really yep. want to know what a person's like, give them power, and then you'll see the true nature of that person come out. Unfortunately, you have individuals who start leading the church who may not always have the best interest in mind uh, for the church. And so they begin taking on practices where they're straying from the biblical-centered church of, of the apostolic era to, to including things like indulgences. 
And this becomes a big hot topic as we move into especially the Reformation of the 1500s. The indulgences were used basically by the church to say, if you pay me this amount, I will guarantee you a place in heaven, or I will guarantee you that your sins will be absolved if you'll just pay me this amount. And so it's almost like a fast track to heaven, so to speak. Uh But this, as you can imagine, when you start giving people that much power and authority, this begins to be abused. And you have individuals rising up and saying, hey, there's, 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 we have some serious issues here. So the official date for the Reformation, and we'll talk about the Reformation up until uh, really about the time of the American church, or really the European church, British church, time of the American Revolutionary War, so to speak. Um, we're going to be skipping a lot of time periods, uh, but we're looking at the major shapers of different denominations. So that's what we're really focused on. So the official time for the Protestant Reformation began on October 31st of 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. However, there were seeds of the Reformation that began much earlier than that. And this was something as I was researching for the podcast, it really startled me that there were many individuals who started the seeds of Reformation even back as far as the 1100s. Really? And believe it or not, this this caught me off guard, some people believe that Francis St. Francis of Assisi, who lived from uh, 1181 to 1226, may have been a pre-reformer. Because what he was doing is that he would teach townspeople theological doctrines even though he was not given licensure to do so by the church, he believed that everybody needed to hear the gospel. Now, let me back up and say, around, what was it, a thousand, so to speak, Jerome, uh, and it may have been earlier than that, it may have been, well, I think, in fact, I think, I'm, I know it was, it was earlier than a thousand, it was, it was back in, uh, Man, I can't think of the date offhand. But anyhow, Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. Now, we hear about this King James-only controversy in modern churches. Well, that has nothing on the Vulgate controversy because the church believed that, that, that you had to read the Bible in Latin and nothing else from the days of the Vulgate onward. And so uh, Francis of Assisi was teaching that townspeople everywhere should hear the gospel. And the bishops were saying, no, only the proper authorities can teach them. They have to come through us. And Francis was laying that seeds of the Reformation saying, no, this is a gospel that needs to be heard by all. When 1140 to 1218, Peter Valdez uh, he he founds a, a denomination called the Waldensians. And again, this was before the official start time of the Reformation. Um, the Waldensians emphasized lay preaching, that this pre- the preaching was for everyone. It wasn't only for the ecclesiast- ecclesiastically elite. It was for everyone. Uh, they also advocated for voluntary poverty. If you felt so inclined to, to live a life of poverty, you could do that. And also it is strict adherence to the Bible, not to church uh, hierarchy. And so, as you can imagine, this stirred some controversies uh, with a church that had grown greatly in power. Uh, 
Here's another name. In 1372 to 1414, there was a guy by the name of Jan Hus. And um, he lived in around uh, Kuhnwald, Bohemia, which is the modern-day Czech Republic. In the 1400s, he began uh, a denomination called the Unity of the Brethren, but today is known more popularly as the Moravian Church. Uh, the Moravians are really big in our area. In fact, they um, they were uh, even in the Pilot Mountain area where I am. I am. This was a Moravian settlement uh, back early in American history. Uh, they settled down into what was Old Salem and another place called Winston. Later, those two those two communities combined together to become Winston Salem. But even now, in Old Salem, they still have a, a, a tremendous sunrise service close to Salem College in a in a in a uh, cemetery called God's Acres. Well, they would later lean towards Lutheran teachings, but the Moravians were the earliest Protestant Reformation church, you might could say, uh, along with the Waldenian Waldensians. But a chief concern. Here was the same thing with Martin Luther, was the abuse of indulgences. And so Moravians are also classically known for the phrase that I've adopted myself, that in, uh, that in uh, essentials we have unity, in differences we have liberty, but in all things we must have charity. So that we're right. united on those essential doctrines. We have the liberty to disagree on certain issues, uh, but in all things, we need to have love for a fellow man and love for God. And so, um, the, yeah, so Jan Hus, the Moravian Church, they date back to really the 1400s. So again, they're one of the earliest, uh, one of the earliest pro- Protestant churches. Uh, John Wycliffe lived in 1330 to 1384. He was an English theologian. He was uh, also a forerunner to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he called for believers to give up their worldly goods, uh, not to focus so much on power and wealth. And again here, he saw abuse going on in the church, and that's why he advocated for that very thing. He called for reform in the church to counteract the wealth and power of church leaders, abuse of church leaders at that. So he, uh, in doing so, would attack monks and the papacy, because uh, he believed that the Pope was abusing his authority, and he believes, believed that the monks were uh, supporting the papal abuse of the time. And so he called for a return to the teachings of Scripture because he believed that the Scripture was the ultimate authority for the believer. And again, this was in the 1300s, well before Martin Luther was ever even a thought in his, even a twinkle in his mother's eye. Um, yeah, isn't it? Isn't that funny how it all circles right back to the scriptures? Absolutely, <laughs> and so and that's and, and like Wycliffe, he was even involved in translating the scriptures, and he wanted a translation. Many people couldn't understand the Latin Vulgate in the 1300s. Quite honestly, he wanted a translation in the modern tongue of the individuals in England, something that everyone could understand. Sure. <laughs> and that makes sense. Absolutely. And so he dismissed the idea. He, he, he believed that the scriptures need to be understood and he needed to be read by everyone. And so this was starkly opposed to the church who said, you have to go through our appropriate channels for you to read the scripture and interpret the scripture. Um, 
the Catholic Church has had this view, and I think they still do, of this concept called transubstantiation, in which the the Eucharist, the Lord's table, as we were just talking about the bread and the wine or the juice, uh, they believe that it was actually transferred over to the actual body and blood of Jesus. Correct, yep. And so Wycliffe said, uh-uh, not so. Yep, I agree. <laughs> now, weren't you a Catholic before, Curtis? Yes, yes, sir. So yep. did they yep. still hold that belief in transubstantiation? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, in fact, they had it in. They would uh, have a um, a service or a uh, the portion of the service was to put it back into uh, uh, back into its holding area. AKA, I would, I always kind of called it their tomb. So, oh, okay, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Um, I have some family members who are Catholic up north, but I, I wasn't exactly sure of of the practices in modern times. And so, it's it seems like that 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 viewpoint still still exists in, in Catholicism. Um, in 1496 to 1561, there's another guy that comes along by the name of Mino Simmons, um, and he founds a group that is quite controversial. <laughs> he, he founds a group known as the Anabaptists. Uh, nothing much is known about Mino Simmons until around the age of 28 when he's ordained into the priesthood. Even though he was educated in a monastic school, Simmons took issue with the idea of transubstantiation. Here again, the very thing we were discussing. So Simmons becomes, get this, an evangelical preacher back in the 1400s. And he held that the Bible was the only authority for the child of God. And so, interestingly, he goes out preaching the gospel to everyone. I mean, he is like an ancient Billy Graham so to speak. I mean, he's going out and he's, you may even think that he may be holding tent revivals or something like that. I mean, back in the 1400s or something. But <laughs> the problem is, is because he was so, had such evangelistic fervor, he was intensely persecuted by the Catholic Church, but he was also even opposed by Luther and, and Calvin. Uh, Luther and Calvin called them the Anabaptist fanatics and scatterbrains. Uh, <laughs> Because they were their evangelistic fervor. So Anabaptists taught that baptism should only be by immersion, not by sprinkling. And that would be a distinction that they would have with Lutherans and Calvinists. And they were also pacifists. Um, Often Mino Simmons is known for quoting Paul saying, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Um, Anabaptists would influence later Baptist denominations. Uh, and uh, and actually also is directly associated with the Mennonite denomination, which bears the name Mino from Mino Simmons. So, um, so the Mennonite denomination actually is directly related to the Anabaptists and Mino Simmons. So then we come to uh, October 31st in the 1500s. There is a uh, young priest by the name of Martin Luther. And uh, Luther had issues with several different things with the church. But one of his biggest problems with the church was on the abuse of power that he saw. So this is a recurring theme we see with many individuals 
even back to St. Francis of Assisi, their problems are with the abuse of church power, the, the abuse of uh, the authorities, and also the abuse of indulgences. And so um, he also believed that the believer is justified by faith alone and not through the sacraments of the church, although he still did hold a high view of the sacraments. So in on October 31st, 1517, um, before they celebrated Halloween, uh, he nailed his 95... I'm assuming they didn't celebrate Halloween then. I, I don't know. Maybe right. they did. But uh, the, they nailed the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, well, I don't know. They may have, come to think about it, because they have the All Saints Day on November 1st. So anyhow, I'm losing track of what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let me get off Halloween. <laughs> but, but anyhow, he nails the 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg. So these 95 theses were... Uh, a challenge to the church authority, a challenge to the papacy, a challenge to the abuses, and he wanted an answer. And so later he would get his answer because he would be excommunicated from the church. But uh, Luther emphasized ju- that in justification by faith alone. Story is told uh, of uh, that he is in a uh, uh, castle, and the name of the castle eludes me right offhand, but he's He's writing down uh, a book, and, and he envisions the devil standing in front of him. And, and the devil's accusing him of all these different things. And, and he finally has enough, and he stands up. He grabs the inkwell, which he's writing from, throws it at the wall, leaves the ink stain on the wall, and says, I'm justified by faith alone. I'm under the blood of Christ. So this justification um, would hold a deep, would resonate deeply with Luther. And, uh, and and so and this is something he emphasized greatly. 1916, uh, Lutheran scholar Theodore Engelder published a paper which held that Luther defended what he called the five solas. Sola means only. So the five solas would be sola gratis, grace alone. Uh, sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fides, by faith alone, and Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. So these five solas marked the fundamentals of the Reformation. Grace alone, to God alone be the glory, Christ alone, by faith alone, and Scripture alone. Now, Amen. So Luther would also have an issue with, with transubstantiation, but he goes about it a little bit differently. Luther argued for that the body of Christ is not literally in the elements, but it surrounds, spiritually surrounds the elements. So he calls this consubstantiation. It doesn't, it's not actually the blood and body of Christ, but the spirit of, of Christ is, is, is present, ever present in the taking of communion. Um, Luther also held to a singular view of predestination. Um, that is, God chose who he would save, but he didn't really choose who he would condemn. So in other words, the, the idea is like that uh, God sees this vast number of people throughout history, and he's going to reach out and grab who he can, who he can save, and, and, and bring them into the fold. Uh, so that's kind of the singular predestination view. The only problem is, many people have contended if you go that route, by sheer necessity, that would have to predestine the condemnation of the others who weren't saved. 
So right. it kind of in, implies double predestination, some would say. But, um, but anyhow, the denomination of Lutheranism came out of the teachings of Martin Luther. It's important to note here, as we're going to talk about as we go through this podcast, uh, the, uh, something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are interested in hearing about, and that's the how do you work out divine sovereignty, especially predestination, with human freedom. Well, Luther held to the singular predestination, but he had a cohort whose name was Philip Melanchthon, who lived from 1537 to 1560. Philip Melanchthon, now, now Luther was kind of a brash individual. He was headstrong. He had a temper. Um, he was a combative type of fellow. Melanchthon was the exact opposite. He was cool, calm, um, even keel, even tempered. Uh, he was Luther's right-hand man, and many would even argue that he may have been the brains behind the operation. Um, but uh, he, he may have even been a deeper thinker than Luther. Luther was oh. against uh, a lot of the humanities. He was against, you know, to a degree, he was against philosophy. That wasn't true of Melanchthon. Melanchthon started out that way, but later on Melanchthon really was open to the idea of the sciences and of philosophy and things of this nature. Um, he's accredited with to have written the Augsburg Confession. Um, he viewed any veneration of saints with a critical eye. He really was, was skeptical of venerating saints. Uh, he did have positive views about Mary, but uh, he was... He was uh, uh, critical of venerating saints. Uh, he, he he declared the Immaculate Conception of Mary as an invention of monks. Oh, oops. <laughs> well, I'm I, was, sure. I, was, I, was, I was digging where he was going until then. <laughs> well, now, when I talk about the Immaculate Conception, he's talking about the idea that Mary was, not the virgin birth of Christ, but the Immaculate Conception saying that Mary was was virgin born along with Christ. So th- that's that's what he's talking about there. Um, in contrast to Luther, Melanchthon held a positive attitude toward philosophy and the natural sciences, as we mentioned. Um, Melanchthon is also accredited to systematizing Luther's ideas. Uh, Luther actually wrote of Melanchthon in the preface of uh, Melanchthon's commentary on Galatians, saying, I had to fight with rabble and devils, for which, for which reason my books are very warlike. I am the rough pioneer who must break the road. But Master Philip comes along softly and gently, sows and waters heartily, since God has richly endowed him with gifts. So uh, he comes highly recommended with by, by Luther, even though they are... Uh, opposite in their disposition and and come to uh, different opinions on uh, uh, certain situations. Theologically, one of the most fascinating distinctions between Luther and Melanchthon come in the very idea of predestination. Melanchthon didn't go as far as Arminius later on, but he did hold that God's sovereignty cooperates or collaborates with the human will. So it's not divine sovereignty or human freedom, it's actually both. So thus people are free and God is sovereign. So it's not an either-or situation. Um, Melanchthon writes, God is not the cause of sin and does not will sin, 
but the will of the devil and the will of man are the causes of sin. And so I think he's pretty much dead on there, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, it's right where we need, right where it's supposed to be. So he takes this middle ground in the idea of that. So then we come to, drum roll please, <laughs> John Calvin uh, in 1509 to 1564, a very controversial theologian even today. Uh, he's a French theologian who emphasizes divine sovereignty. Uh, he wrote the classic Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, interestingly about Calvin, Calvin was actually a very thin, sickly man who suffered from digestive issues. And having suffered from digestive issues, I can I can um, sympathize with that greatly. And interestingly, even though he was a pastor, he never desired to be a pastor. Uh, he he, wa- he only became a pastor out of necessity. Uh, he preferred to research, study, and write, and that was where his where his uh, passion was. Uh, theologically, he held that that he he emphasized greatly the glory of God, and so he emphasizes and stresses the sovereignty of God, and that the sovereignty of God precedes all other things. Um, but Calvin did hold to a semblance of human freedom, but he believed that humanity was irreparably damaged by the fall. So he believes that even though people can make decisions. Because they are irreparably damaged by the fall, then they're going to always choose bad things. He writes, The question of freedom, therefore, has nothing to do with the fact of man's being led by natural instinct to desire good. The question is, does man, after determining by right reason what is good, choose what he thus knows and pursues what he thus chooses? So he's arguing the fact that People can't choose God because the will of, of humanity is always going to choose wrong. And so he would even, well, there's a question mark as to how far he goes with quote-unquote Calvinism. Um, he did seem to advocate double predestination, indicating that some people were chosen to be saved and others were chosen to be condemned. However, it was not until a hundred years after Calvin's birth that the TULIP acronym comes about. There's another guy we're going to talk about whose name is Jacob Arminius here in just a few moments. Um, But at the Synod of Dort, this was called by the Dutch Reformed Church, the views of Jacob Arminius were condemned. And so they established the five points of the Calvinist TULIP. And and the the acronym represents five truths uh, or five... Uh, points of theological doctrines of Calvinism, so to speak. The T represents total depravity. In Calvin's opinion, especially Calvinists, they believe that people are completely depraved. They're never going to choose the right thing under any circumstance. The U represents unconditional election. That means that God unconditionally chooses some people to save and chooses other people to condemn. Limited atonement means that is the belief that Christ only dies for those who are the elect chosen to be saved. Yeah, it says this uh, that that this is the most uh, this part right here the the atonement part is the most controversial of the five points. 
it, um, some, some people that, would argue that. So some people would argue that. Yeah. Yeah. I represents irresistible grace. This means uh, in Calvinist doctrine that when the Spirit of God seeks to reach someone, no one has a choice but to submit to the Spirit of God. So there's not there's no human effort involved in it whatsoever. There's no human response involved to it whatsoever. A person just mm-hmm. does what God influences them to do. And then pers- perseverance of the saints. This is not once saved, always saved, interestingly enough. Perseverance of the saints means that the elect will persevere until the end. Only the elect. So this actually leads some people like John Bunyan to constantly question whether they're the elect. If they mess up and they sin, then they're going to wonder, oh man, I must not be part of the elect. So it leads people to have mental breakdown sometimes, wondering whether or not they are uh, truly elect or not. Uh, Calvin also advocated for paedo-baptism, which is infant baptism uh, as well. So they didn't baptize by immersion. And also, Calvin contends that the best form of church government is the presbytery form of government, which is a board of uh, synods and um, elders leading the church. Uh, It's almost like a republic where people elect certain representatives and those individuals, you know, basically run and govern the church, so to speak. Right, right. Any questions so far before we move on? Well, uh, no, I I guess I just wanted to kind of get into the Armenian side of it so then we can kind of stir some more questions. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, let me let me move through the next two real quickly so we can get there. Ulrich Zwingli, and, and the reason he's important, and if we go over a little over a time frame, you know, I found out that we have a little more time that we can put on the podcast if we need to. Um, Ulrich Zwingli lived from 1484 to 1531. He founds the Swiss Brethren Church. Again, he's also disturbed by the indulgence crisis as well as abuse found in the church. He becomes enamored with Erasmus' translation of the New Testament. This guy's an interesting guy. He teaches himself Greek and memorized large portions of Scripture. He also challenged the notion of clerical celibacy, saying that, that, that you know, Peter had a mother-in-law. That means he must have been married, so why are we requiring priests to be celibate? But Zwingli uh-huh. also rejects transubstantiation and consubstantiation of the Lutheran Church and holds something that Baptists, and I think the AG Church holds this as well, that the Lord's Supper is a memorial-only type of interpretation. So he says it's symbolic. That doesn't mean the uh-huh. actual blood of Christ is in the wine or the actual body of Christ is in the bread. This is a memorial following along in the footsteps of Jesus, remembering the things that he's done for us. So that's that's how we need to look at the Lord's table. Not as transubstantiation of the Roman Catholic Church, not as the consubstantiation of the Lutheran Church, but the memorial-only type of format uh, of belief system. Right. Yes. So John Smith uh, lives from uh, 1554 to 1612. He's also going to have an influence on the modern Baptist movement. Um, Smith, however, he, he's a little eccentric. Uh, he emphasizes a congregational style of church p- 
polity or church government, saying that the congregation should be autonomous or self-ruled. And he always only believes that bishops or pastors and deacons were the only biblical offices that should be held in the church. Now, here, here's the interesting thing. He says that baptism is not washing with water, but it is the baptism of the Spirit, the confession of the mouth, and the washing of water. How then can any man without great folly wash with water, which is the least and last of baptism? So the problem that Smith saw is he didn't think that any church had been baptizing correctly, so he baptizes himself. <laughs> He literally baptizes himself and then uh, practices this self-baptism. And so he develops uh, a movement from there. And now we get to, bigger drum roll, please. Uh, Here we are. 1559 to 1609 comes Jacob Arminius. Arminius was a Dutch reformer who was trained. Now get this. This is going to knock some people out of their socks. He was trained by Theodore Beza, who is the successor to John Calvin himself. And he was trained at the Geneva Academy, a school that John Calvin had developed. So there's a bit of controversy that develops, and he leaves from Basel for, for Basel, when he, uh, the town of Basel, when he angers Genevan authorities for defending a French humanist by the name of Peter Ramus. Uh, but he... Arminius, even while in school, had an issue with predestination and certain aspects of Calvinism. And so he writes a book called The Remonstrance, uh, and he gives several remonstrances where he's, he's listing out problems that he has with hardcore Calvinism. So his system's later rejected by the Dutch Reformed Church, as we mentioned earlier, uh, at the uh-huh. Synod of Dort. But... Um, Arminius's doctrine can be laid out by the acronym DAISY. So Calvinists have the tulips. Arminius has a daisy. Okay, And Arminius would be very influential upon John Wesley, who would come later on in American and English history. So DAISY, what does it mean? So the D represents diminished depravity. Okay, Arminius says yes, we are depraved as human beings. We can't save ourselves. But that doesn't remove the image of God implanted in a person. So even though our fall has affected us and has caused us to be unable to save ourselves, we can still sense the Spirit of God moving on us so that we can, uh, we can make a response to 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 Christ, it, salvation. Arminius argues is completely a work of God, but we do have the ability to respond or reject the moving of the Spirit in one's life. Um, he also a- advocates what's called abrogated election, and what this means, or or um, or conditioned election, may be another way of putting this: that election of a person is conditioned upon whether or not a person receives Christ. So. The way Arminius sees it is that those who Christ, those who God foreknew, those He also elected. Okay, so God foreknows before the 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 halls of history even come about who's going to who's going to respond positively to His grace and who's going to reject His grace. Okay, so those who God knows will respond to His grace, He elects. 
impersonal atonement or universal atonement can also be worded that way. This doesn't mean that Christ's blood uh, applies automatically to everyone. He basically says that it is sufficient so that everyone could be saved, but efficient for those who respond to the grace of God. Sedentary grace is, at least according to this acronym used here, um, uh, sedentary grace is uh, opposing the uh, irresistible grace. And what he's basically saying here is that a person can respond to the grace of God. God moves upon a person, and then a person can respond or reject. Yieldable justification here. Uh, this is uh, this is responding to um, uh, the perseverance of the saints. That um, Arminius is going to say, he, he he doesn't really make a claim either way. Arminius is going to say that it's possible that a person could be saved and later recant their faith. But there's a difference between Arminius and John Wesley. Arminius is going to say, if a person could, he, he doesn't say it's completely possible, but he says if it does happen that a person rejects his or her faith, then that person could never be saved again because they would be crucifying Christ all over again. So essentially, if you gave up your faith, you couldn't be resaved, according to Jacob Arminius. Now, John Wesley is going to come by later on and say right. that if a person recants their faith, then they can reobtain it by submitting themselves to Christ. So that's the distinction between Arminius and, and John Wesley, and we'll talk about that on our next podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. That uh, yieldable salvation, um, that's, that's something that um, you look at, you look at that's probably one of the bigger debates um, in that between the two. Yeah, and and you, and you have individuals. Well, and and when we come to the the next the next one, I, I'm going to give you what um, Ken Keithley gives for another acronym, um, and and this is kind of a. Um, Baptistic spin <laughs> on on Molinism here. I, I, I'm just going to give that as a caveat to everybody as we go for, forward uh, in that. But uh, but yeah, that that is that is that is something that even among individuals who are well, again, even between Wesley and Arminius, that becomes a, a, a contentious issue because for Wesley, he says, well, you know, if, if the grace of God brings us to salvation, if you can lose your salvation then the grace of God would would allow someone to be saved again if you know if that happened. So that becomes a hotbed even among those in the Arminius camp. Um and and then there are some even um you know again there there are various interpretations of uh, how you could go with that. But interestingly I've read the remonstrance of Arminius and uh he doesn't really come down hard on any position there. Uh, he basically says that this is an issue, at least in what I read of him, um, that this is an issue that needs further exploration, you know, down the road. So, um, but then we come. I, I want to add a couple of um, a couple more fellows here uh, before we close with our last um, guy of, of the podcast, and um, 
I've got to add here, because I'm more in the Molinist camp, I've got to add in this time frame a guy by the name of Louis de Molina. Uh, he, he lived from 1535 to 1600. Now, he is a Catholic, but there's good evidence to suggest that he was himself a reformer. Uh, he, he, he sympathized greatly with what Martin Luther was doing, and he wanted to see a Reformation take place. Now, let me pause here and say, everyone needs to know for Martin Luther, Martin Luther did not want to develop a new denomination. He wanted reform to come to the church. He wanted to see the church, the Catholic church, to reform back to the uh, type of church you see in early Christianity. Louis de Molina, it appears, wanted the same thing, but they went about it differently. For Louis de Molina, or for Martin Luther, he brought a reformation outside the church. Louis de Molina was trying to bring forth a counter-reformation within the church to bring it back to uh, back to the place where it needed to be. I don't know that he was completely successful in that, um, but but anyhow, uh, he, he did at least get the counter-reformation going within the church. Now, the biggest thing you need to know about Louis de Molina, if you follow, follow William Lane Craig and many others who ascribe to Molinism, you've probably heard this name a lot. Now, the reason Molina is so important, he is actually a Thomist. He looks at the writings of, the, of Thomism, and he, um, he, he, he further, in my opinion, he, he takes some of the things that Thomas Aquinas says to its logical end. That's not to say that he doesn't debate Aquinas on some issues, because he does. But he advocates for what is called middle knowledge. And so um, the middle knowledge argument would be that God knows, when he when God creates uh, an individual, he knows every single circumstance that could possibly happen. And so that God places individuals in certain times and places for a reason. And so God has a knowledge of what um, could happen. That's his natural knowledge. He has the knowledge of what will happen in the end because of his free knowledge. But in between this, he also has middle knowledge, which is he knows what free creatures would do under certain circumstances. So he creates a world where the most amount of people can be saved. And uh, he, he still creates people uh, who he knows won't be saved. The people ask, well, is that not kind of like the predestination? Well, the idea is it may be that it's it's better for someone to have existed than not to exist. That might be the going argument. There's a lot there that could be unpacked. But, but Molina uh, has an acronym too, and this comes by Ken Keithley's book, Salvation and Sovereignty, a Molinist Approach. And I actually have that here on my desk as we're going through this. Um, the, 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 the ROSA stands for this. Ra- R stands for radical depravity. That a person is radically uh, depraved, and this happened at the fall. Uh, and, and, and like Molina, um, excuse me, like Arminius, this has drastic consequences to, to an individual. But it doesn't remove the image of God in a person's life. So um, th- this is important for one to understand. So this goes against the uh, total depravity in the tulip. Um, o, w- overcoming grace, goes against the irresistible grace in tulip. Uh, overcoming grace, and quoting Keithley, uh, overcoming grace, he says on page 4, 
highlights that it is God's persistent beckoning that overcomes our wicked obstinacy. So it's God's wooing, it's God's beckoning us that that wins us over to salvation. Right. Sovereign election is the first S. Uh, this combats unconditional election. Sovereign election, and here I'm reading from Keithley. In fact, I'm going to just read from his book. Uh, it says, Sovereign election affirms that God desires the salvation of all, yet accentuates that our salvation is not based on us choosing God, but on God choosing us. So here again, the sovereign election is based on that middle knowledge, uh, what he knows free creatures would do given certain circumstances. Um, Eternal life goes against the perseverance of the saints. Eternal life uh, stresses that believers enjoy a transformed life that is preserved and we are given a faith which will remain. So what he's basically saying here is that we don't have to continuously question our salvation. We don't have to... uh, We can be assured that God is going to come through with what he promised. That's essentially what that says. And the last S is singular redemption. And this goes against limited atonement. Um, singular, Singular redemption emphasizes that Christ died sufficiently for every person, although efficiently only for those who believe. So, um, so here again, this is an alternative. That This is a third way. Uh, I'll make mention of another guy, Francisco Suarez. Uh, he actually finds a middle ground between Molinism and Thomism, but that, that's, another, that's for another podcast because we just don't have time to get into that right now. But uh, he is a very interesting guy, and um, his version of Molinism is actually called Congruism because he adds back some things that, uh, that Thomas Aquinas held that Molina may not have emphasized as much. So it's another branch of Molinism. But then finally, we come to a guy by the name of George Fox. And uh, we're, we're emphasizing people who had an influence on certain denominations. George Fox is the founder of what's called the Friends Church. It's also known, the Friends Church is also known as the Quaker Church. Um, Fox was born in a small English village uh, and he was disgusted with the immoral behavior of self-professing Christians. I mean, how many of us have been disgusted by people calling themselves Christians and acting in an ungodly fashion? Um, and Fox was one of those. He came to the point that he condemned all denominations. And so he was just disgusted with the Christians of his time. So he believed that hymns, sermons, sacraments, creeds, as well as professional clergy were all hindrances to people finding their inner light. And their inner light, he believed, was God's spirit or presence within each person. Thus, in most friends' churches, ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are not taken at all due to Fox's belief that such things hinder true worship. So, he also emphasizes community, passivism, and the refusal to take oaths, tithes, uh, or submission to uh, authorities in that regard. Uh, And that doesn't mean... Uh, anti-government. It just means that a person shouldn't take public office, uh, in in Fox's opinion. But here, here we have, and here's the interesting thing as a way of wrapping up this. Coming back to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. From this, we have four views 
on on how we are to interpret the Lord's table from from these guys in in this time period. You have the Roman Catholic transubstantiation, which is the belief that the bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. You have consubstantiation of Lutheranism, which holds that the presence of Christ is in the bread and wine at communion. Zwingli holds the memorial view, which is to say that uh, that the baptism and the and the Eucharist are only memorials we do. They have no salvific power to them whatsoever. And then you have the friend's view of, of George Fox, which says, get rid of all of them. They're all hindrances. So, <laughs> I mean, so you have from one extreme to the other extreme and then the right. variations in between. So uh, the biggest thing to take from this is I believe that a lot of our denominations stem out of this period of time and um, closely associated with uh, one, one or more individuals of this time period. So it's really in the history of the church a very fascinating period of time um, and something that would hold a great impact uh, on the way we do theology even now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I kind of look at um, uh, the, the Calvinist and Arminianism uh, and all of these. Um, these are well within the uh, Christian Orthodox umbrella. So this is a um, in-house uh, debate. It's absolutely. It, it's yeah. It's not something that um, is uh, leaning you uh, a heretic. Although some of those could lean you hard one way, uh, and and could lean you into a path of of that. Uh, but some of them um, are almost uh, viewed as being too soft. Mm. <laughs> so. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting to see this um, starting to kind of spur and spawn up, and I think what is um, the overarching picture is uh, when we look at all of this, um, the 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 fact that we can't nail something down, the fact that we can't figure something out something out with solid uh, proof. It, it, it goes to show how great our God is and how big He is in this it, it, that. That we can all have these thoughts, all have these um, uh, basically these lifelong investigations of what do you mean by that, Lord, um, and and be able to have that time where we can uh, agree to disagree, but still be followers uh, of Christ and still be fellow brothers. Absolutely, and I think it's important too. Uh, and and two things I would just want to add to that. One thing I think that as we and and, and there's a chart book and, I, and uh, Dr. Um, Cleaver shared it with us and I have it on Logos or Kindle One, uh, but I don't have it up. But it, it shows how individuals throughout the history of the church have have been like on a pendulum where we start like say suppose we start in the middle period where where the truth actually resides. But then something happens and someone overreacts to something and it goes mm-hmm. the pendulum goes far on one side and then right. someone overreacts the other side so it goes back to the other side. And so you see this constant back and forth throughout the uh, history of the church. But secondly, another thing you mentioned, I think you hit the nail on it too, is the fact that everyone in this is under the umbrella of Orthodox Christianity. 
Um, I would dare say the problems begin arising when you have hardcore determinism, when you start blaming God for all of our choices. That, to me, is very problematic and starts uh-huh. going in a direction against biblical truth. But I think if you go too far on the other extreme, more into open theism, saying that God doesn't know any future events and that uh, everything's up to us, or even especially more into Pelagianism, where where we choose Christ and where we where we uh, save ourselves, essentially, nice. that becomes a problem, too. So anywhere between a mild version, in my opinion, a, a, a milder version of Calvinism towards a... Um, towards Wesleyanism and everywhere and all points in between uh, are in uh, what I would call Orthodox Christianity. And I, and I have some friends who are more deterministic, and I would say they would be in, uh, the, uh, in the branch of Christianity as well. So when I say mild Calvinists, I'm not saying that those who are more deterministic aren't Christians. Let me just clarify that. I may have some emails later on if I don't. Yeah. But but if we take too much of a deterministic uh, um, emphasis on that, then we may find ourselves outside of the biblical biblical parameters. Is what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, this has been a, a good uh, a good podcast into discovering some of our uh, church history, and we're going to dive into number three uh, soon. And so, uh, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending. Uh, your valued time uh, together with us. Uh, our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and as a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of end discussion and make it a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier so on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at barnesandnoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christie Ministries by simply leaving a review? 
If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.